Welcome Tim Horton to our seminar today. Tim is the research director of the Fabian Society. And today he's going to talk about uh, public attitudes to poverty, inequality, and welfare, and the implication for social policy. Um, we as sociologists have tried to document and report the extent and trends in inequality in many aspects of our society. Uh, quite clear that in many societies, though not all, there have been large increase in inequality uh, since the 1970s, the so-called the Great U-Turn. We might have some, um, you know, uh, preference about uh, how desirable or undesirable it is, but if we were to um, ask for social policy to uh, counteract these ch uh, changes, we need to carry the public with us. So it is important to understand um, what the public think about inequality, uh, poverty and welfare. Are they aware of it? What do, we, what do they think about it? So before um, Tim took up his position in the Fabian Society, he was a civil servant working in the Treasury and then uh, for a time in the Labour Party, in the policy unit of the Labour Party, and also in the Department of Trade and Industry. And he's now, as I said earlier, uh, research director of the Fabian Society. Now, according to the most authoritative account, the, the most authoritative depository of human knowledge, Wikipedia, uh, the, Fabian, the Fabian Society is a British intellectual socialist movement whose purpose is to advance the principle of social democracy via gradualist and reformist rather than revolutionary means. And apparently, the Fabian Society is named after the Roman general Quintus Fabius Maximus, who was famous for his tactics of attrition and uh, harassment rather than head-on attack. So this conjures up the image of the gladiator and Russell Crowe. But today we have the urbane and gentle uh, team, uh, but he will give us a, um, you know, a combative and blow-by-blow blow, blow account of public attitudes to poverty. So here's you, Tim. Thanks a lot, and um, thanks very much for inviting me. And Fabian um, <coughs> gradualism is always a good um, excuse if you're ever behind the deadlines. <laughs> uh, it's always a good thing you can uh, refer back to, so thank you for reminding me of that. Um, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm going to report on some uh, work we've done, uh, part of a research project in 2008 and 2009. Um, in fact, two separate bits of research, really. One of them was for the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, um, as part of their research programme about public interest in poverty issues. And um, the JRF, whose mission is tackling poverty, um, I think, like many, uh, and particularly many progressives um, over the last 10 years or so, um, have gradually come to realise that actually some of the constraints that are faced by decision makers in tackling poverty aren't necessarily policy constraints or policy knowledge, but political constraints, and in particular, how uh, how you can pursue anti-poverty policy that at the same time will have public legitimacy. And that's why they've launched this programme about public interest in poverty issues. Um, the second bit of research that I'll be drawing on is, is an ongoing project we've been doing looking at the welfare state in the 21st century. Um, so I'll go through a range of stuff, um, I hope in a vaguely coherent order. Um, and um, uh, feel free to ask me about any of it at the end. 
So let me just start with some um, issues about attitudes to poverty and inequality. Um, and um, I'm, I'm not really going to tell you about the research itself. It was some polling and focus groups in 2008 and 2009. Feel free to ask me more about the specifics at the end. One of the key things we really wanted to look at is what principles people use when they're, they're judging fairness in how, how you allocate resources, whether that's in the marketplace, whether it's by a welfare institution, so on and so forth. And what we found uh, very quickly is that, no surprise, different groups uh, among the population tend to use different principles. In fact, basically people are pluralist, they weigh up different principles against each other. I'm talking here about things like need, desert, entitlement, and so on and so forth. People recognise the validity of all of them, but different groups will tend to prioritise different ones. What we found is there's a minority of kind of more egalitarian participants out there, maybe a bit like me, that tend to judge fairness primarily on the basis of need. But most people out there tend to judge fairness primarily on the basis of desert or some kind of behavioural criterion that looks a bit like desert. But what was interesting is even when these groups in the population tend to agree that their motivation for doing so is different. Let me give you a couple of examples. We found a lot of anger out there towards the super rich, those with very high salaries. But whereas for the egalitarians it tended to be because these salaries were more than anyone possibly needs, for most people it was because that they didn't deserve them. Similarly, lots of support out there for a high minimum wage. For many of the egalitarians it was like there wasn't enough to meet basic needs. For most people it was like, well, these people are working hard, they deserve a bit more. Now a consequence of, of what I've just said is that there's, there's quite a widespread belief out there in fair inequality, that deserved inequalities are fair. And that's one reason why quite abstract appeals to greater equality or some of the kind of standard messages you get from poverty campaigners tend to fall on deaf ears. People don't necessarily think that inequality is a bad thing in itself. Traditional egalitarians, people like me, tend to like political arguments like this. There's something fundamentally wrong about a society in which some people earn so much more than others. Um, this was from an exercise where we did, where we got people to card sort different arguments for and against tackling inequality. Most people, though, preferred arguments like this. While differences in wages are necessary, those doing low-paid jobs are often carrying important roles without which the country couldn't function, and they deserve to be paid more. Um, if you're interested in this kind of thing, um, people tend, tended to use different dessert bases for, for rich and poor. For the highly paid, it was how they were performing in their job, and how did they get their job? Uh, for the low paid, it was the necessity of these jobs, the effort they're putting in, and compensation for stress and anxiety. Um, so if you're a philosopher looking at dessert and criteria of dessert, what was interesting about this is skills was nowhere. Um, people got angry about the super rich because they weren't performing well enough, or they were sympathetic to the low paid, because either they were doing necessary jobs or they could see these people were trying very hard. Now, no one pretends um, you know, we can build a progressive welfare state purely on the basis of who deserves what. But what is interesting to note is quite a wide range of progressive policy reforms that those sentiments would nevertheless already support. Um, so high minimum wage, huge support out there for that. Um, and I'm going to show you party breakdowns really just to show you that there's actually very little difference when it comes to issues of clear-cut dessert. Um, more financial support for carers, something people were very worked up about. Huge support, very little difference. Tackling tax avoidance, so slightly different, but particularly when people think of cracking down on tax avoiders, there was a kind of dessert type sentiment there. Um, again, very little. So 
lots of immediate no-brainers out there for any politician that, that the current landscape of public opinion would, would already support. Um, let's just look at the, 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 the rich a bit. Um, flip side of a belief that deserved inequalities affair is anger at salaries thought to be excessive. So we ask people, salaries of 150 grand deserved net disagreement there. Are they too much because they're more than anyone needs net agreement there? Slightly different type of question, people, um, this time phrasing things in terms of being overpaid. We ask people, are people on 100 grand overpaid? Large agreement with that. And what's interesting here is lots of regional differences of opinion. Um, perhaps reflecting maybe high salaries in London and the South East, um, but also particularly when it came to the city. Um, uh, it seems like the angrier you got away from London. Sorry, north here is the three regions, northeast, Yorkshire, and northwest. The further you got away from London and the city, the more angrier about it you became. Um, so one of the things that the Joseph Ranchi Foundation wanted us to do is to try and explore the drivers of these attitudes. So most polling will tell you who thinks what. What's more interesting for a policymaker is why they're thinking that, and therefore how they might respond to novel developments. Um, here we're looking at, these are regression coefficients, really looking at the strength of association between particular underlying beliefs and whether or not people supported. We've got two policy measures here. In blue, a generic proposal to increase tax at the top. In red, a generic pr proposal to reduce the gap in incomes. You can see um, the subscription to, to kind of um, views about need on the end there. Beliefs that high salaries are deserved effectively reducing um, uh, support for these policies. By the way, obviously these are correlations. In the focus groups we did, it was quite useful. We could then try and probe some of the causality and it did indeed seem that these beliefs were actually driving these attitudes. Um, incentives, this is interesting, um, particularly for philosophers. I mean, it's very hard sometimes to disentangle desert-based arguments and incentive-based ones. When you control for beliefs that salaries are deserved, incentive arguments tend to lose their power, psychologically anyway. This one's interesting. Lots of people were basically very fatalistic about the prospects of tackling inequality. Um, doing these focus groups all around the country, time after time after time, I'd ask people about issues of fairness, and they just shrug their shoulders and say, that's the way it is. And there was a really strong belief out there that inequality is just inevitable, and there's not a lot we can do about it. And as you can see, that tends to reduce support for policies to tackle inequality. So thinking about campaigners here, um, Perhaps a really important contribution they could make is trying to combat that sense of fatalism. Um, and it reminds me of something you said in, in, our introdu in the introduction, uh, th thinking of the motivation for doing this kind of work. One possible application of it is to think how can we design policy to better resonate with public opinion. I'll talk a, a bit more about that later. But also as a political activist myself, I'm very interested in, in thinking about how to challenge existing attitudes. Um, and this type of fatalism is really, really important. So, we're not in a particularly rosy um, climate in terms of attitudes to welfare at the moment. Here's a long-term trend in support for redistribution of income to the less well-off from the British Social Attitudes Survey. Again, here's another, uh, the new aggression, this type of data for a generic proposal to spend more on welfare benefits for the poor. Um, and as you can see, they've been on a declining trend for recent decades. On the flip side, though, this at first seems a bit of a paradox. There's quite a lot of support out there for progressive tax and benefit systems. In our focus groups, we show people data like this, which is basically what the tax and benefit system does to your original income. So you can see it converts an inequality of original income 
of ten, about 10 times top and bottom quintile um, into after-tax and benefit about five times. So it's substantially equalizing. Um, when people looked at that, they were fine with that. They thought that's exactly what the system should do. We asked people to design their own tax and benefits. Um, they would often draw his, here I'm getting them to design an income-related benefit and how they taper it away. As you can see, people are very committed to progress, the progressive structure of, 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 of income-related benefits and of taxation. So, and, and, and quite a lot of studies suggest, and particularly some intriguing focus groups by Alan Hedges done a few years ago, um, when asked in the abstract, people are very strongly supportive of progressive tax and benefits. In other words, structures that are redistributive. Um, yet at the same time, we see that opposition that you've just seen to redistributive policy. So what's going on? One hypothesis is that it's about self-interest, but actually the data, and we'll look at some of this in a minute, doesn't really um, support that. In particular, some of this opposition to redistributive policy doesn't necessarily correspond to people in high and low income bands. Um, some of the most uh, uh, stringent opposition to welfare we found in our focus groups were from people who almost certainly were um, making extensive use of the benefit system themselves or were really struggling quite a lot who might be expected to be relying on it. And some of the strongest support was from people on higher incomes. So it doesn't seem to be about self-interest. What we found uh, really was a, a really strong set of negative attitudes towards people in poverty and people receiving welfare. Um, so it, it's, not, it's, not a, it's, it's, not, it's not a belief that progressive systems are unfair, but have a specific set of negative attitudes to, uh, whether right or wrong, uh, perceptions of welfare clientele. And I want to look at that for a bit now. Um, we wanted to look at some of these key drivers um, of, of these negative and often quite punitive views towards those in poverty. And we found two really strong drivers of this. One was a widespread belief that basically there's enough opportunity out there for everyone. And not that opportunities are equal, but there's enough to get on if you really wanted to. And a consequence of that is it results in highly individualised explanations of poverty and disadvantage. Rather than looking at the structural forces out there operating on people, people tend to individualise the blame. It's your fault for being where you are. And this is a way in which the UK and the US are actually quite different to many other uh, advanced uh, industrial democracies around the world, um, which where there is more of an awareness of those structural forces. So we ask people, agree, disagree, there's enough opportunity for virtually everyone to get on. It comes down to the individual and how much you're motivated. <coughs> Strong net agreement there. And, and, and across the political spectrum, people on the left as well tending to also subscribe to this dominant ideology. Many people are severely disadvantaged because of their background and find it impossible, however hard they work, to overcome the obstacles they face net disagreement with that. The second driver, and arguably the strongest one, was a real widespread belief that benefit recipients wouldn't necessarily go on to make a reciprocal contribution back to society in the future. This was very, very entrenched and by far and away the strongest driver of, the, uh, of these attitudes towards welfare. So we asked the question, most people who receive benefits now will make a contribution back in future? Net disagreement, just with that generic statement. And it's this sense that uh, the recipients themselves won't go on to make a contribution back that is driving opposition to the policy itself. What I want to do now is just come out of that for a moment and look at some specific properties of these attitudes to welfare 
and attitudes to the recipients of welfare. Um, and then go on to suggest how we might link those back into policy. Um, and in this section, we'll, we'll look at some more of our own attitudes research, but I'm also going to review some experiment and survey evidence as well. So there's, there's three, three properties of attitudes to welfare that I want to pick out, I think have particularly important consequences for policy architectures. Um, and I'll look at these all briefly in a second. The first one is a phenomenon called strong reciprocity. The second is that it's intentions that matter to people in judging fairness, primarily not outcomes. And the third is, uh, it might sound surprising given punitive attitudes out there, but people tend to be quite forgiving and judging by your current behaviour really rather than your past behaviour. So let's just look at those in turn. So, uh, just standard result of social psychology, experimental economics, most people exhibit social preferences and they care not only about what they get themselves but what others get too. Um, so just a classic example of this is a one-shot ultimatum game. In an ultimatum game you have two players, a proposer and a responder. The proposer can offer the responder any amount of money um, at any proportion of it. So here he's, he's deciding to keep 80% himself and offer 20%. The responder can either accept it, in which case the money is divided accordingly, or reject it, in which case they both get nothing. And self-interest would predict that responders would, would always accept because they get some money if they accept. But what we find is that a substantial proportion of people reject offers below about 30%. And what, what that means is a responder is thinking, I'd rather forego the 30% and punish the proposer for an unfair offer than I would to take the 30%. So it's less about, it, suggest, it suggests a non-self-interested response, but really a concern with fairness, and in, in, in particular to punish unfair behaviour. And around 40 to 50% of the population typically exhibit this behaviour um, in a kind of <coughs> conditional cooperators. And I say a one-shot game because if you did this repeatedly, there might be a strategic reason to punish people so you could get higher offers next time. But this is robust even in a single interaction. And the basic point here, um, sorry to go through this quite quickly, is that this, this type of reciprocity is asymmetrical. It's not someone giving because they're getting back. Um, conditional cooperators are happy to pay a cost and maybe not necessarily to get something back themselves, but they're, they're not happy to see others gain unless they've been contributing. So they're happy to put into the pot and it, it's not that they're, they're going to get that money back, but they get upset if people are taking out the pot without playing by a certain set of rules. I'll come back to that in a minute. Oh, here's just some survey data. Tom Sefton in the British Social Attitude Study in 2005 did some cluster analysis of the population and divided them into three groups. Club members uh, are a bit like these conditional cooperators and contrasting them with Samaritans or pure altruists who are happy to give under whatever conditions and Robinson Crusoe's who are non-cooperative or selfish individuals not happy to, 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 to operate collectively um, under, under any circumstances. Now, and here you've got the, the, the attitudes of these groups to two statements. It's not fair that some people pay a lot of money in tax and hardly use the services they pay for, on the one hand, and it's not right that people benefit from the services that they haven't had to pay for. And what you see is this asymmetry here of strong reciprocity. People actually not thinking it's particularly unfair that you're not getting stuff back that you've paid for in tax, but thinking it's unfair that other people are taking advantage of it without putting something in. Altruists don't mind either. These guys mind both. Um, though even in these groups, there's more disagreement with this one than with this one. 
And that's quite an important point, actually. A lot of people who think of themselves in altruists, as altruists, when you put them in game theoretic experiments, nevertheless tend to increase their levels of cooperation in response to cooperative behaviour from others. So there is, in fact, an element of this reciprocity underlying their actions. Okay, second property, intentions map other thing really, rather than outcomes. And um, just a, a, an example here is an ultimatum game with a constrained strategy set. So here we see what we've just talked about. If you give a proposer a chance to either make a 50-50 offer or an 80-21, and they make an 80-21, 44% of people reject that. Um, and that's that group of strong reciprocators we talked about. But if you only let people make an 80-20 offer or a 100-0 offer, hardly anybody rejects that. And the reason for that is there was nothing specifically about an 80-20 offer that was objectionable. Uh, rather, they were using it to judge the intentions of the proposer. So 80-20 seems an unfair offer in the, when you could have made a 50-50 one, but it seems the fairest one you could have picked here. And results like this are really important. Um, but basically falsify a consequentialistic view of fairness. It, it, it wasn't the 80-20 outcome, but what you perceived as the intentions of the proposer. So we did an exercise in our groups, uh, presenting a variety of fictional characters and asking people who deserved their out-of-work benefits. And over there, we've got Gary, um, who was laid off through cutbacks, but because he wants the same type of work, keeps turning down available jobs. Here we've got Ian, who was sacked, but now regrets it and is trying hard to get a new job. And we gave people a myriad of characters like this. The person who they got angry about all the time was this one, the person who wasn't looking for a job. Um, basically, every other character who was trying now, they were absolutely fine with them receiving out-of-work benefits. And interestingly, that applied to immigration as well. So, here was Chris, who came from India, he's been working, he's now out of work, claiming out of work benefits, trying to get a job. Everyone was fine with that. Um, talking about immigration isn't pleasant in focus groups, so I'm now an expert in how to move conversations away from immigration. Um, but what I realised pretty quickly is all of the negative attitudes you immediately get are not really, are, are, are really expressed because people tend to enter welfare debates at the level of stereotypes. And everyone has a stereotype in their head of an immigrant who is someone who has come to the UK to claim welfare. By giving people these fictional characters, we, we made it impossible for them to deal in stereotypes and they had to reason about fairness. And what we found pretty quickly is everyone was absolutely fine, provided someone had good intentions, provided they were trying. So I asked people, how long would you have had to have been in the UK uh, and working in the UK to now be able to claim out-of-work benefits. And people all denied about this, but actually what became clear pretty quickly was that they didn't think it was that relevant. And here's a quote from one of our participants. The point is not how long. I wouldn't mind if someone had got a job in the UK, was travelling to take it up, but then the company went bust and they needed support. But I'd want to see a letter saying they got a job before they came here. And so many public attitudes towards welfare are driven basically by a, a kind of fear of being taken advantage of. It's very kind of primeval emotion. And it's, it, it's wanting to check for good intentions that's important. And just a bit of survey evidence here, um, again from British Social Attitudes. Under what circumstances would be right to limit a person's access to unemployment benefit? Actually, issues of asylum and immigration not, don't really figure. Someone not trying to get a job does. 
Yes, that's, re that's really interesting. A few years ago, David Goodhart, who's the editor of Prospect, wrote quite a famous essay saying, oh, diversity, it's going to screw up the welfare state. Um, political scientists like Alicina and Glaser, um, who uh, particularly a book they wrote a few years ago called A World of Difference, Why the US Doesn't Have a European Welfare State. A lot of this thesis is that a lack of support for welfare has been driven by ethnic rationalisation. This research actually suggests that it's not that at all. And people don't really, I mean, of course, there are some people out there for whom racial or ethnic difference is an issue. But for most people, it's that they're operating with a stereotype of an immigrant who was someone who was not trying. So, intentions, not outcomes. Final one of those three things, people are forgiving. So, what you find, well, in fact, another type of um, game theoretic experience is a public goods game. Basically, a lot of group of people all have to put money into a pot. Um, uh, it's individually irrational to do it because it's a cost to you and you might not get that back. But if everybody does it, it's normally multiplied by something and you get more back and it's collectively rational. <coughs> what you find is people tend to cooperate in the public goods game. They then get angry with people free riding. And if they can't punish them, they withdraw their own cooperation and it all disintegrates. If they can punish them, they, they will punish free riders at a cost to themselves. Um, and free riders then start cooperating, so they induce free riders to cooperate. Um, now, what you find is that once free riders have started cooperating, everyone's fine again, and people are still then contributing subsequent rounds. They don't tend to hold grudges. There's a willingness to forgive past affections and cooperate if others are now doing the same. And that, that, that behavior is actually also an optimal strategy for maximizing returns. So in tit-for-tat scenarios, it actually makes more sense, even from a self-interested perspective, to forgive the person if they are now cooperating, because it can maximize returns. So if we go back to this, this individual was sacked for skiving off. Arguably, it was his own fault that he's unemployed, but he's now trying. This one was laid off because of the recession, but, it, but wasn't now trying. And in every case, people were angry with this guy. So, people were prepared to give past mistakes if current intention was good. And we did some regression analysis on polling results. So, the question behind all of this, support for redistribution, was that British social attitudes one you saw in the graph earlier, just a generic proposal about increasing welfare benefits for the poor. And we looked again at factors associated with um, opposition to redistribution, in this case the bars are coming down. Um, so, this is reducing people's support. So self-interest plays actually a, a relatively small role. There's a little bit of that there. Higher income group we're using as a proxy for self-interest. And that's good news. Beliefs and values matter more than self-interest. But this is also good news. Beliefs about the past matter much less than beliefs about what someone will now do. Um, and that's a good thing, because we can do something about perceptions of what people will now do. Um, a lot of, um, th there's been a strain of social research about poverty particularly framed through concepts of the undeserving poor, which has tended to be quite backward-looking. So philosophically, the concept of desert is quite backward-looking. It's an evaluation of a past performance and matching the reward you get to that. Um, and similarly, a lot of this social research has been asking people, why do you think people are in poverty? Why are they unemployed? It's in fact a very backward-looking focus onto that. Um, what this suggests is actually beliefs about the present and the future um, that carry more weight. Okay. What, what I want to do now, let's just come at that. What I want to do now, um, just to finish, is look at potentially how we might map some of these attitudinal lessons onto policy structures and, and see what it comes out with. Um, 
And I want to take the national insurance system for this. Now, the national insurance system, um, when Beveridge wrote the blueprint for it, it was very much conceived rigidly as an insurance system. It would run on an actuarial basis. And the money that people actually paid in would be used to finance the benefits they got out all together with their employers' contributions and treasury contributions. So there was a very rigid link between financing and structure. And here's a passage from the Beveridge Report. He says, whatever money is required for insurance benefits, as long as they're needed, should come from a fund to which the recipients have contributed, and to which they may be required to make a larger contribution if the fund proves inadequate. Very tight link between financing and structure. Now, historically, um, well, what I'm going to suggest now is actually that wasn't necessary, that tight link, in order for the system to resonate with public perceptions of fairness. Beveridge thought, as you can see in the first bit of that quote, that this, this, this rigid connection between finance and structure was, was what was necessary to appeal to public perceptions of fairness. Actually, I don't think it was. And a sad consequence of that belief is a variety of aspects of the national insurance system which have historically been quite exclusionary. So, look at three of them here. The exclusion of those participating outside paid employment. So, because it was through direct financial contributions, it was centred on paid work. Um, you see that injustice most clearly today in lack of pension entitlement for people who've been caring throughout their lives. Um, only 30% of women today reaching state pension age are entitled to a full state pension compared to 85% of men. And, and only 23% of women on the basis of their own activities rather than in virtue of uh, being married to their husband. Arbitrary flaws on access to the system. So because there was a sense that you were financing these benefits, you had to be paying a certain amount. And originally that started, you actually, there was a flat rate stamp you had to pay, almost like a kind of poll tax in the benefit system. Um, that was abandoned pretty quickly and, and you had earnings related contributions, but with a lower earnings limit. So you could only become entitled if you were earning above this lower earnings limit. And historically, that's been a source of exclusion as well. The minimum wage has made it less so, but even in 2005, around 1.2 million women in particular earning less than the lower earnings limit, because the vast majority of them were part-time work juggling that with caring, and, and not building up entitlement through either. Um, incredible. And a third way, entitlement linked to past contribution volume. So you needed an adequate contributions record to be entitled to your benefits. Um, here's a stat, just looking over the last 10 years, only about 50% of the onflow onto incapacity benefit, only 50% around that have been eligible for the contributory version of the benefit rather than the income-based version of incapacity benefit. So that, that, that quite rigid conception that you were actually financing around benefits led to a variety of arbitrary structural features which have created injustices. And what I want to suggest really, um, from the evidence we've seen, weren't necessary. I mean, the sense of strong reciprocity should, thinking if other people are contributing, contributing um, it's less what you're getting out, but making sure people are playing by the rules. Um, the point about intentions mattering. If, what we found in our focus groups, if people were in low-paid work and they were trying, everyone was fine with that. It didn't really matter how much they were earning. It's not the outcome, but the intention. At that point about future behaviour and current behaviour, rather than your past behaviour, is important. One of the char these characters we presented to people had quite a, a, a lengthy contributions record, but was now turning down jobs and kind of gaming the system. And people were very angry about that. They didn't really give a monkey's about his contribution record. It was what he was doing now. So we've got an irony here that 
some arbitrary features of social insurance have been exclusionary and uh, that uh, don't re they don't really resonate with the public sense of fairness. We could actually just strip those out immediately and get a better system. We're doing a little bit of work looking at um, the idea of a participatory system of benefits rather than a contributory system. So this would work by giving support in return for current participation in socially valuable activities, whether that's employment, caring, certain types of volunteering, studying, and so on and so forth. Or for preparing to participate, so um, engaged in job search activities or preparing for work activities or rehabilitation programs or so on and so forth. And it would provide credits to everyone in return for any of these designated forms of socially valuable contribution. It would still be financed by hypothecated contributions from income, and well, you might think, well, that's a bit harsh on the people in paid employment. They're now paying for a lot more people. But the fact is, um, you know, carers are doing £70 billion worth of unpaid care work. Uh, volunteers, <coughs> volunteers are doing around £25 billion worth of uh, volunteering work, and that's unpaid as well. So there's an opportunity cost to not supporting <coughs> these behaviours. This system then hopefully should maintain a link between entitlement and participation but without the exclusionary effects of the contributory system. Now, why are we worried about this? Why not just have a need-based system? And that's, that's kind of the final question. Um, the, the point is that the vast majority of people within this system would receive benefits on the basis of their participation rather than the situation we've got at the moment, which is unless you've got a sufficient contributions record, you automatically go onto a need-based benefit. So let me just take an example. In, in 2008, in, in, in February 2008, there were about 825,000 people claiming job seekers allowance. There's a lot more than that now, obviously. Um, of those 825,000, um, only uh, about 12,000 had received more than one sanction in the system for failing to comply with conditions, that's about 1%, 1.5%. Um, um, so a lot, about 10% of people on unemployment benefit basically get some kind of sanction, but often that's people forgetting about stuff and not really understanding the system. The vast majority of people, if they receive a sanction, never require another sanction. Only <coughs> about 1.5% of people on unemployment benefit are receive more than one sanction. And in particular, only 0.1%, so 1,000 out of those 825,000 have multiple sanctions to their name. So what we might even play in the system. So what a system like this would do, would it would shift the situation from what we had in, in 2008, which was about 75% of unemployment benefit claimants on a need-based benefit, even though they were had every intention of getting a job, and 25% on a, the contributory version, to a system where we would have about 99.9% on a participatory benefit and 0.1% of people on a need-based benefit. Now, this would reframe the system in a way that in some ways might seem a little bit cosmetic, but just to bring it back to the attitudes to welfare, part of the angst about the welfare system, as we saw, about people's views towards those receiving benefits, <coughs> is that having a need-based system opens up a range of questions about worthiness. Um, it might sound a cosmetic point, but if you're getting things that are actually linked to your participation, that provides a rationale for them which tends to close down questions about deservingness. Um, so, in some ways, it is a reframing, but we think in a way that could absolutely address some of those attitudes, trying to have cake and eat it, really, to having a, a behavioural-based criterion of entitlement, but sufficiently more that basically no one is excluded who wants to participate now in socially valuable activities. 
Why I think this is important, I just want to finish by showing you a couple of graphs, which, which really just highlight the kind of grisly situation we're in and what we're trying to get out of by this proposal. So this, these are perceptions of the level of unemployment benefit against the development of the relative value of unemployment benefit related to earnings. And since Margaret Thatcher delinked contributory benefits from earnings in 1981, the value of them has fallen and fallen relative to average earnings. But what you can see here is, particularly since kind of the emergence of new labour and a lot of the rhetoric around rights and responsibilities, the number of people thinking that unemployment benefit is too high and discourages work has gone up and up and up. And the point is, it's nothing to do with the value of the benefit. In fact, this, even though it's depressing, it's quite good news, because what it shows is you can't assuage public opinion by putting downward pressure on benefit levels. Um, but the reason why is this angst has got nothing to do with the level of the benefit is because all these questions have opened up. Since, since you know, part, part, part of the scaling back of the contributory system in the early 80s, that a lot of people ended up claiming a need-based benefit, and that's opened up all of these questions. Um, let me just show you a second graph. Uh, this is perceptions of benefit fraud um, against the level of benefit fraud. And as you can see, you've got that completely contradictory trend as well, with anxiety about fraud going up and up, level of benefit fraud going down and down. Um, benefit fraud wasn't measured before 1997. Uh, uh, but again, the, the reason for this is that people aren't worried about the cost of fraud. You know, the government's actually tackled fraud quite a lot, but it's accompanied it by a narrative of saying that it's cracking down on benefit cheats. Now, if people aren't worried about the cost of fraud, but the intentions of people participating, then the narrative that the government has used has actually created this anxiety. Um, does that make sense? Mm. It, it would be like the Home Office trying to combat fear of crime by saying, we're targeting late night murderers. I mean, it would make people worried about late night murderers. We've got these ads on TV saying we're targeting benefit thieves. It's quite sad that a lot of the conditionality framework that the Labour government's introduced could have been used to build confidence in the system. But it's been accompanied by a narrative that's undermined confidence in the system. Um, I've got some more slides on various stuff, but I'm going to stop there um, and have some questions. Uh, uh, and yeah, indeed, I'm not going to say anything else. So over to you, thanks. Thank you, Tim.